it was everything I wanted it to be. It, it was incredible. And I was so grateful for the opportunity. But what really happened when I got up there is it absolutely drove home the point that this was going to be the rest of my life. That's Carol Pilon of Third Strike Wing Walking, who was my guest on this episode of the Work Not Work show. Sometimes life-changing inspiration comes in an instant and from an unexpected source. I'd already invested seven years and stood up to monumental amounts of rejection. Now I knew. I'm like, yeah, I'm not giving this up. Not for a second. In Carol's case, it was the split-second clip of a wing walker she saw advertised for a local air show in 1993. She was transformed by the experience and knew that it was something she simply had to do. Little did Carol know that it would take seven years for her to get her first opportunity to step out of the cockpit of a Stearman biplane and climb up onto the top wing. It was a life-changing moment for her. And you know what? It felt like being home for the first time in a very long time. I'd always known that I wanted to be a wing walker, but that first flight just drove the message home with an impact like you would not believe. She knew at that precise second it was what she wanted to do for the rest of her life. But the wild ride on the top wing was not the only wild ride she would encounter. For 17 years, she has waged a day-to-day, moment-to-moment campaign to stay out there in the slipstream. After working with other teams for a time, Carol eventually concluded the only way she could control her future was to own her future. She bought her own plane, in fact, the very plane used for her wing-walking debut, and she and her bright red steerman have been on the air show circuit ever since. Stay tuned for much more. It's a wild ride in so many ways. I'm your host, Terrence C. Gannon, and this is the Work Not Work Show, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Carol Pilon, welcome to the Work Not Work Show. Having known about you and your show for years, I'm thrilled to have you as a guest on the show. Well, Terrence, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for thinking to include me in your show. I'm I'm thrilled to be speaking with you today and uh, looking very forward to the interview. Carol, your first experience of wing walking was in February of 2000 with Margie Stivers as your coach and Hartley Falstad as your pilot in his Stearman biplane. Can you take us back to that day in February of 2000 and describe that experience? <laughs> well, I certainly can. Actually, it was February 7th. I remember that date. I have trouble remembering other things, but uh, that date is stuck in my head for sure. I, I forget birthdays, anniversaries, and all that stuff, but that day I will never forget. The first thing you need to understand, Terrence, is by the time that that day had finally come to pass, I'd been striving to be a wing walker for an excess of seven years. So I had basically suffered seven years of rejection and ejection before that day finally arrived. And people often ask me, were you afraid the first time you went out? And I'm here to tell you, no. I felt like the world owed me this and I was going to get out on that wing come hell or high water. And I did. 
And when I got out of the airplane and climbed up into the top rack and I just took in a breath, realized where I was, and you know what? It felt like being home for the first time in a very long time. I'd always known that I wanted to be a wing walker, but that first flight just drove the message home with an impact like you would not believe. And I remember landing and worrying because, you know, Margie and Hartley were great to me. They gave me the experience when nobody else would. And they didn't have a job for me and they couldn't really offer much in the way of continued mentorship because, you know, as I said, they had no use for me, but they did want to offer me the experience and the opportunity. And I am just so grateful that they did. But the first thing I was thinking about when I landed was, how am I going to get up there again? <laughs> well, did did you actually go through any sort of training? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Margie was very diligent with me and very caring. Uh, she made me walk through the exact procedure that I would be doing up in the air for, gosh, a day and a half, if not two days, I think. Um, and all of that was to build up muscle memory so that when I got exposed to the elements, which are, by the way, extremely overwhelming the first time that you make contact with them, you want your, your muscle memory to remember where you're going so that when your brain stops working, your body keeps going. We were talking about a day and a half, two days of training on the ground before we ever got up in the sky. It was very meticulous. The only thing I did on my first flight was get out of the cockpit and crawl up to the top rack and hang out there for a little while and then climb back down. And that's the way to build a wing walker is one step at a time. So in your imagination leading up to this day, compare the experience to what you imagined it was going to be. It was everything that I imagined it to be and more. The reason Margie took me up is because she had seen me struggle with trying to become a wing walker low those many years. And she said, well, Carol, you know what? I'm just going to take you up. This has gone on long enough. It, it's silly and I feel bad for you. So I'm going to take you up. And she did. It was everything I wanted it to be. It, it was incredible. And I was so grateful for the opportunity. But what really happened when I got up there is it absolutely drove home the point that this was going to be the rest of my life. I'd already invested seven years and stood up to monumental amounts of rejection. Now I knew. I'm like, yeah, I'm not giving this up. Not for a second. Let's back up a little bit from that day. You grew up in rural Canada. Can you tell us where and a little bit about your early life that may have set the stage for your later wing walking career? Oh, gosh. I don't think there was anything in the cards to see this coming I, I was just a normal kid. I had a pony. I had a pet falcon. Uh, everything was cool. <laughs> well, you know, I grew up in the country. So I, you know, I was afforded the opportunity to just, you know, experience stuff as a kid should and experience nature and have fun with it. I, I can't imagine raising a kid in the city, but they have different experiences, I expect. So I was always an outdoorsy type, and uh, I got along with wildlife quite fine, and I also got along with domestic animals quite fine. I was not a rambunctious child. I was not a daredevil. I was not out of control, and I wasn't a wild child. I was just a perfectly normal little girl. Early adult life saw me being very attracted to aviation, and that led to my first parachute jump. And when I did my first parachute jump, I realized I liked flying in the small airplane just as much as I enjoyed the jump. So after booting my first 
serious boyfriend to the curb, I developed a surplus of funds magically. Wow, isn't that cool how that happens? <laughs> and I had enough money to go out and buy an airplane. Fantastic. So I just went and bought an airplane. I, I had no idea that I'd have to learn how to fly it. I just assumed it's like a car. Just get in and go. Makes you wonder why you didn't get rid of them sooner. Uh, no kidding. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so here I am with this airplane at like 22 and learning how to fly it and saw an advert for a local air show and thought it would be cool to maybe go see that thing and check that out. But what really happened is during the advert, I saw a nanosecond of a wing walker go by and I was just blown away. Uh, it just grabbed me hook, line and sinker. It's owned me ever since. No doubt in my mind. Okay, a gentleman never asks a lady her age, but I'm going to make an educated guess and say that you had some life and work experience prior to wing walking, and you already said that you had seven years of rejection before you actually got a chance. So, you know, how did that develop your subsequent interest in wing walking as a career? Well, first I'm going to backtrack a bit and say uh, I've never answered the question of how old I am. I've steadfastly refused to. A gentleman never asks a lady her age, and I'm not asking, Carol. <laughs> but this year is a celebration this year i turned 50 wow and it is the year of the 50 and i intend to celebrate my 50 years of survival on this planet with all the joy and abandon that i can and i want the whole world to celebrate it with me <laughs> so you are the first interviewee who has ever gotten a direct answer out of me. Oh, I'm my 49 goodness. now, and I will be 50 mid-season. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, we made some news. Yay! Yay that's <laughs> I've got a scoop, my first scoop. That's, that's your first scoop. <laughs> that is fantastic. Well, congratulations. I hit that milestone not that many years ago, but a few years ago. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a scary time because you you begin to think in terms of, well, if, all, if I only live 100 years, my life is half over. Ah, uh, you know what? I'm not looking at it that way. Oh. I am embracing it as, you know what? This is a testament to how I've been doing stuff right. If I've been able to survive myself this long, <laughs> not to mention 17 years of wing walking, and stunting and, oh, geez, traveling across the world. I, you know what? I've done okay. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a question at the end where you talk about how much fun you can have, but we'll, we'll save that for the end, end of the interview. <laughs> so that is remarkable. Uh, so you had, what kinds of jobs did you have prior to embarking on a career as a wing walker? Well, unfortunately, I've come to learn that I'm not employable. I've always worked with my family. I have never actually held down a real job in my life where I've had to like punch the clock for somebody else. It's always been for my family. So it's one of those things where you don't do nine to five, but you sure don't get your weekends off either. Right. <laughs> I've always been led down the path of self-determination and self-sufficiency uh, throughout my career. Uh, my family started off as farmers. And uh, I did a lot of farming with the family. I was in charge of the small animals, so I had to tend to them. Mm -hmm. And it taught me very early on that if you didn't do your job, things died. It's that simple. Right. So be responsible for the things that you're responsible for. Otherwise, the consequences are pretty dire. Interesting, yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, those things ended up dying anyways and ending up on our, our kitchen table. But, I mean, <laughs> in between then. <laughs> it was planned at that point. 
it was planned at that point, but uh, yeah, another lesson. It doesn't matter how much you care for it, it's still going to end up dead. <laughs> so you were working in the family business, essentially. Well, that, you know, that was our, that was the first segment of my life. We had the farm. Mm -hmm. After that, my father was a contractor. He was before the farm and he was after the farm. He would often take me on job sites with him on the weekends when I wasn't in school. I was expected to get up and go help him out and give my mother the weekend off so that she could do house chores and take care of errands. And on the weekend, I would go on to the job sites with my dad and lend a hand there. And even as a young child, I was on roofs with my dad and all over the place. We moved out to Calgary for a spell. Uh, we're out there for the construction boom. Of all places. And of all places. Yeah. Uh, it was a happening place to be at the time. Mm -hmm. And at that point, uh, I actually was doing babysitting seven days a week, believe it or not. When I was 12 years old, I was actually sitting for a family that had a seven-year-old and a 13-year-old. And I thought it was like super awesome that I was able to babysit for somebody who was older than me. But, uh, you know, funny as it was, it worked. And after that, we came back, did more contracting work. Then my uh, parents bought a store, and it started out as a little convenience store, and it's now a supermarket, and that's where we still are. So when I'm not wing walking, you will find me managing uh, the supermarket at home. It sounds to me as though you have an entrepreneurial streak. Whether I have this streak or not, it's certainly been instilled at me at this point, and I don't think I'm employable in any sense of the term at this point. <laughs> Carol, was there a particular moment when you said, yeah, I'm going to be a wing walker? Yes, when I saw that advert, that was it. Done. <laughs> just that split second on TV, that was a turning point for you? It, it wasn't just a turning point. It was right then and there going to be my life, period. Can you explain that? What I can tell you is salmon know they need to spawn, and I knew I needed to wing walk. and. I know that's not right, but I find myself very fortunate. There are people who go through their whole lives never knowing what their passion is or their desire or their destiny. I've always known since that first day. I'm very, very fortunate. Were there moments between 1993 and 2000 when you didn't think you were going to make it to that first experience? What kept you going, Carol? There was actually one moment. You know, going into this, I knew it was going to be a struggle, and I put up with a lot of no's, and I mean for every reason that you can imagine. I was too pasty, I was too white, I was too Canadian, I was too tall, I was too skinny. Every reason on the face of the earth was given to me. I looked at my dad, and I said, maybe it's time I pack this up, and you need to understand when I told my dad that I decided what I was going to do with my life and that it was going to be wing walking. He gave me the exact same look that he gave my brother when my brother came home with his first tattoo. I mean, he just looked at me with total contempt, rolled the eyes in the back of the head and walked away just like, yeah, why don't you just, uh. so, so this was a big thing for him to do. He looked at me and he said, Carol, he said, how many wing walkers are there in the world? And I'm like, well, right now, dad, there are seven. He said, so there are seven teams. I'm like, yeah, that's right. And he says, so are you really telling me that you're going to let seven people tell you what your future is going to be? Wow. And I said, okay, Dad, one more time. And that's the year that Margie and Hartley were kind enough to take me up. My dad is still here, and he's my best friend on the face of the earth. I want him to be there forever. You know what? I've just decided he will be there forever. 
done. <laughs> what is his feeling about how things have turned out for you? He didn't like wing walking at the beginning, but he became my biggest fan and my greatest supporter. How long did that take? Say about five years of watching me get my butt handed to me on a platter. <laughs> you know, he just watched me struggle with it and struggle with it and struggle with it. And he still watches me struggle with it. Mm -hmm. And he wants the best for me. He just wants me to be happy. He's, he's like the dream parent. Doesn't get any better than him. Your first professional experience of wing walking was with Jim Franklin's Flying Circus. First, can you tell us how you got that job? and then how it evolved over time. Jimmy's wing walker at the time was Kyle, his son. And Kyle wanted to go back to school, wanted to continue his education, and uh, was making some pretty serious noise about it to the point I'd heard about it. And that was also the year of 2000. I had just had this experience with, you know, Margie and Hartley, and was looking again for a place to go and pitch my tent, if you will. And Jimmy was going to be in the market for a wing walker. So I called him up and I'm like, Jimmy, you've said no to me for seven years. You've had no use for me for seven years. I've done this. I can actually hang on to the airplane. I can stay on it. That's been proven. Here are some pictures. I would like to do it again with you. If I'm not suitable, send me away. But you have to give me a chance. And I think I may have threatened him with murder if he did not at least give me a chance. <laughs> I'm not saying I did. I'm just saying it might be a possibility. You could do it the easy way or the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> so sure enough, he gave me a chance. Uh, he brought me down to Missouri and we went through extensive training. What I'd done with Margie and Hartley was a first step. It was a very important stepping stone. But Jimmy Franklin got right down to brass tacks. He made a wing walker out of me and in short order. I lived up to his expectations, and he decided to take me on for the season. Pursuant to that, we developed a relationship that was completely unprofessional. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> and then we ended up getting married. <laughs> but you know what? It was the best of worlds for me. I was madly in love with somebody who had completed me made all my dreams come true, turned me into a badass wing walker, and he was also my hero. So I don't know how life gets any better. It really doesn't. That was an absolute beautiful, beautiful thing for me. Unfortunately, it was not long-lived. We ended up separating. That was the end of your professional relationship, too. That was the end of our professional relationship. It was the end of our marriage and our divorce was over in short order and there was no looking back. Unfortunately, he passed away not very long after. And one of my biggest regrets in this world is not having fought harder to save my marriage because some part of me believes that maybe if I could have succeeded in doing that, that he might still be alive. You carry that with you? I carry it with me every day. It was an air show related accident, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes. Yeah. So it, he was doing his thing. He was doing his thing. I don't know how you do it. I mean, I, I mean, that just sounds like an incredible burden to have to carry. Well, it's fine. I live with it because he made me a wing walker so that I could wing walk. 
in retrospect, that's the only thing I can do is be thankful to him. That's a beautiful way of putting it. And this is the only way I know to honor him and his memory is to keep doing what he instilled in me. So after the relationship with Jim Franklin ended, you decided to go out on your own. Why was that? Well, I thought about it long and hard, and I was still going to be a wing walker. (laughs) That's all I'm supposed to be, and nothing changed. I was still going to be a wing walker. So that meant I needed to either get another team to work for or think of something else. And I took a look around me, saw who was flying, saw who was wing walking, decided that I didn't necessarily want to wing walk with any of those pilots or with any of those teams. And said, well, okay, what do I do next? Nobody else had done it before me, but I decided as a wing walker to go out buy an airplane and just hire the pilots I wanted to have fly for me. In doing so, I I kind of disturbed the force a bit. (laughs) It's an unusual way to do it. It's, uh, you know what? It is now the standard. Yay! There are teams emerging all over Europe who are absolutely following my platform. Interesting. And there was one in the U.S. for a while. But, yeah, this has become the way to do it. I am thrilled to death to have spearheaded that. (laughs) In a January 2017 article, a wonderful article by Suzanne Cope in BuzzFeed, she quotes you as saying, I went to the bank with the biggest pack of lies business plan that you ever saw. (laughs) That's a question that asks itself. Can you tell us that story? Um, Yeah, I devised this great business plan where I would be working every single weekend and that my airplane would never break. Oh, I see. (laughs) A little optimistic. And all the numbers worked very well. (laughs) Right. (laughs) As long as everything went perfectly, like that happens. Well, you know what? There's always a saying in banking business, the loan was secured three different ways to Sunday, so they really had nothing to worry right, about. Right, of course, yeah. <laughs> they they always get their money back. They always get their money. But yeah, it was the biggest fabrication. But nonetheless, uh, you know, the lady who actually uh, gave me the loan told me that that was a beautiful business package that I'd put together. Well, there you <laughs> I go. I thought if you only knew the reality of it. But she didn't, and she didn't care, so... And and that helped buy the plane that you're still flying today. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, it, it all turned out well then in the end. And actually, the the airplane I fly today, I'm going to sidetrack you here for a bit. Sure. This is one thing that's worth mentioning. The airplane I own today is the airplane that I bought from Margie and Hartley Folstad, and it is actually the very first airplane that I ever wing walked on. It's got great provenance then. It's a great airplane, and she has served me so well, so, so, so very well. Do you ever sit down with the banker that you told that story to? No, I'm sure she's read about it by now, though. <laughs> right. I would think so. Still making, you know, you know what? The airplane's completely paid down, so no worries. The line of credit, however, <clears throat> another pack of lies. <laughs> We have much more to come from Carol Pilon in our next segment in just a moment. But first, a mention that we're a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. I like to say that ATB is like a bank, but better. 
As you've just heard, Carol's story illustrates how important a bank can be in enabling artists and entrepreneurs to achieve their creative dreams. At the same time, banks are not typically thought capable of adapting to the unusual requirements and the unique characters attracted to creative pursuits. ATB has listened to the needs of this community and, get this, created the ATB Arts and Culture branches dedicated to these unusual requirements. Can you imagine? Carol and others I count amongst my friends who are members of creative communities have had some real challenges with the business aspects of their work, including banking. ATB opened the arts and culture branches in Edmonton and Calgary expressly to serve the needs of creatives like those featured in many episodes of the Work Not Work show. I'm encouraging my friends in the arts community to check them out, and if you're a member of one of those communities, I would encourage you to do the same. I know, not something you expect from a bank, and that's what makes ATB different and better. Check them out at atb.com listen, or simply search for ATB Arts and Culture on your favorite search engine. It's absolutely worth a moment of your time. Coming up, Carol talks about her newly acquired Stearman biplane and leading her team into their first air show season. So at this point, you've got some pretty extensive experience and you have your own airplane. How did you proceed from there? Well, the first thing I did was decided to go to ICAS, which is the International Council of Airshows Convention, which is where we all go as performers to book gigs. So I showed up my first year, and actually, uh, we won't say this too loudly, but the first year I went to ICAS, I didn't actually have an airplane yet. Oh. I hadn't even purchased my airplane. Through a bunch of bravado, uh, I managed to book eight shows my first season. Without actually having the plane itself? Without actually having the airplane or a pilot. Wow, you really are an entrepreneur. Well, I had credibility, and I had, like you say, experience. I also had people who supported me and wanted to see me succeed, and they were very generous. They backed me, got some deposits coming in, had everything looking good, got the airplane, found a pilot, trained him. And a month before my first air show, he went AWOL. I couldn't get a hold of him. He disappeared off the face of the earth. He had actually quit and didn't tell me. And he relocated himself to Alaska. Uh, So I was scrambling to find a pilot. And at that time, Kirk Wicker was a very seasoned and experienced pilot. And he's actually the one who came out and did the A certification for us. I called him up and uh, got him to come and fill in. Kirk has actually been flying with me and still has a spot on the team whenever you know he's available for the duration of my career as a soloist. So the guy that just took off, is that common in this line of work or in this business? No, it's absolutely unheard of. <laughs> so you're dealing with that shock? I'm dealing with that shock, but it's okay. It was just one of the many hurdles. You have to understand, this has been 17 years worth of challenge. Right. That was just the very first one I had. (laughs) Right. It shocked me. (laughs) So Kirk came in and filled in for a good part of that season, and then I developed other pilots and found that I would not be settling in with one pilot. 
I think I've trained to accredit something in the neighborhood of 19 pilots at this point in my career. And uh, I just keep a roster of trained pilots on hand at all times. Normally, I have three to four pilots accredited to come and fly for me. So if somebody has a wedding or a conflicting air show schedule or a broken leg, it doesn't slow me down. So that's the first thing I needed to understand is I had to have options. Can you tell us a little bit about the economics? Oh, it's terrible. All of it. It's just catastrophic. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Without going into detail. (laughs) Here's the thing. If you're going to be doing air shows, you're going to be doing it for love. You're going to be doing it for passion. There is no get rich scheme happening here. I get paid exorbitant amounts of money to fly in the sky for 15 minutes, but the expense associated with being able to put that 15 minutes in front of my audience is exorbitant as well. I am working in an industry where several people choose to undervalue their assets, so I have to compete with that. I'm also working in an industry where several individuals are sponsored, uh, which means that they are getting well paid. But by the same token, I'm competing for budget that is non-existent to them. They, you know, they charge nothing to air shows to perform there. They're probably doing it much better than me. It, It is a hard fiscal reality. If I was depending on this as my livelihood, I would be pushing a shopping cart down the side of the street and living in a fridge box. It's that thin. It's, it's extremely thin. It's, you know, my real job is actually subsidizing this. And at some point there's going to be a break point, but I haven't hit it yet. Then in 2015, along came Airshow on Discovery Channel Canada, in which you were featured really prominently. Can you tell us how that came about and what was that whole experience like for you? That came about because of a gentleman named Robert Scratch Mitchell. He and I had worked the circuit together. He was, at the time, lead of the Snowbirds. And I was, of course, this little package of TNT running around, exploding all over the ramp everywhere with my, you know, French-Canadian flair for doing so, using big words. Right. He was actually working with the show because one of his passions outside of aviation is documentation, filmography. He is just such a talented individual. He's one of my all-time heroes, actually. He, he ended up working on Airshow as a producer. He knew me and thought that I would be quite colorful. <clears throat> and he insisted, absolutely insisted, on having me be part of the team. You can see that she's now moving and stepping toward the cockpit to climb up onto the top wing. This time, Carol doesn't make any mistakes. Felt good just to get out there and have fun at it again. Like, really have fun. You see her flailing her arms around? That doesn't mean she's panicked or scared. That's her signals to Marcus that she's loving what's happening up there and everything's okay. When we look down, and there's just air under you and your airplane. It's like, wow. All of 
this hassle. And I'd actually met face to face with the producer before. He, he'd actually shopped in my store, believe it or not. And he'd actually met me at an air show convention, and we were cool with each other. We didn't have any affinity towards each other. He didn't get me, and I didn't get him, and that was perfectly okay. Oh, cool as in chilly, as opposed to yes. cool as in cool. Cool as in cool. Right. I mean, it. he's a fantastic guy. Make no mistake. I, You know, we worked out our stuff. You know, sometimes you just make connections with people. Right. We didn't have that. That was not innate for us. Right. So we, Scratch went out on the line a bit and insisted upon having me there and got his wicked little way and managed to do a sizzle reel on me. And he looked at me and said, just before the cameras started turning, he took me aside and he said, Carol, he said, you know what? He said, I have about all of the 30-second clips I can stand from pilots. He said, I need something real, and you need to give it to me. Oh, wow. And I'm like, okay. So we sat down, did a sizzle reel, and I think I burnt his eyeballs out. And (laughs) after the sizzle reel, it was, okay, Carol's on board. (laughs) I just did me. (laughs) That was your audition, was was to go through the sizzle reel with Scratch then? Scratch, you know, wanted me and he was backing me and he fought for me. And basically when he brought the sizzle reel to his boss, it was like, here's Carol. Ta-da. Right. And that was it. I was just being my my particular me. (laughs) You know, working on that show, what was that like exactly? It was hard. You know, I didn't realize how hard it was until all the cameras were gone. And then I'm like, wow, I'm at an air show and all I have to do is go fly today. It was one of those things where you just figured, well, I'm just doing an air show right now, so no big deal. But when the cameras disappeared two years later, it was like, well, I'm going to go have a nap. (laughs) They were in the way, they were... Well, I'm not going to say they were in the way. No. They were producing what I thought was an incredible series. They were working and I was working, but that also meant me hanging around the airport doing outtakes, me having to close the hangar door six times as opposed to one. I see. Me having to discuss every decision and choice and feeling and emotion and action that I had ever undertaken. I can do that because I'm a very determined person in everything that I do. But sitting around and talking about it is, is insane. You don't realize how much time you can take up saying, why did you choose to abort this flight? Oh, well, okay, I aborted this flight because A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You know, in reality, all I would have done in my regular life was abort the flight, and that would have been the end of it. But when you have camera crews around, first we have to explain it, and then we have to talk about it, and then we have to rationalize it. And all of that takes time. It's very time-consuming, and you don't actually realize how time-consuming it is until you're not doing it anymore. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, what do I do now? Where is everybody? Oh, okay, I'm just going to do do an air show. Okay. <laughs> Were you happy with the way it turned out? Um, I have mixed feelings about it. There were things that I really, really liked about it, and there were things that I really disliked about it. But at some point in time, you kind of have to just have faith in the process. I mean, these people were making a show and you have to just trust them to do what they're doing. And and you kind of have to go with it because they're the pros. I'm not. 
I would not tell them how to edit their show or produce their show any more than I would let them tell me how to wing walk. Obviously, everybody is their own worst critic. Right. I, you know, was not often pleased with the way I came across. And other times I thought it was just spot on. What I was pleased with was the fact that I was able to impact people with aviation and I was able to bring wing walking, which is just everything that I'm living for, into millions of homes across a whole world. And I am so grateful for the opportunity to have been able to do that. The one thing that stuck with me is what I really wanted to get across with the entirety of the show was the pleasure that aviation brings, the love that we feel for it, the passion, the joy. And I felt that that was sadly missing. I thought it focused a lot on the drama. But the fact is, is we have good days. And when the good days are good, they're really good. Apparently, that doesn't make for good television. You know, I have to trust them to to do that. But at the end of the day, what I wanted to do was express that joy that joy with aviation. And I thought that was a little bit lacking. And that would be my, my one true critique if I had one to give. But the opportunity was spectacular. The other thing is I also did Sky Gods following air shows, which did 10 episodes in French and did very well. Sky Gods? I've not even heard of that. Dieu du ciel. It aired uh, on the History Channel. Oh. Okay. You need to look into it because that was a really, really nice project to work on. I'm interested in the relationship with the pilot you partner with for your shows. Can you describe that a little bit? Yes, I distrust them all implicitly. I am so paranoid about every pilot that flies for me. It is unbelievable. <laughs> well, that comes as a surprise because you're placing so much trust in them. Well, here's the deal. In, in the past... Every interview I've ever had or seen or heard of with a wing walker, everybody is always, oh, I trust my pilot implicitly, la, 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 la. No, I don't. I'm always questioning, always second guessing. Here's the thing. I trusted my first pilot, which was Jimmy. No questions asked ever. And through my life experience, I've come to be paranoid about everybody on the face of the earth that is working around me. I am always looking at everything they're doing, and I'm doing it with an extremely critical eye. And that is how I've managed to stay alive in this industry, and I will continue to do so. Obviously, I have to let pilots pilot. They have to let me wing walk. At some point, we find a balance. If you're asking me how much I trust them, they are obviously super qualified before they even get into my airplane. And once we've gone through training... I can ascertain that, yeah, you know, they actually have the chops to do this and be good wing walking pilots. But I never go to the point where I will blindly trust a pilot. That's just not part of who I am. It's against everything that leads to safe aviation. We are all responsible for the safety of each and every flight. And none of us, not me, not my pilot, are allowed to let that go for even a second. There was an article written in Air and Space Magazine, I believe it was in 2009. Oh, Debbie Gary. <laughs> the, the article by Debbie Gary, where she talks a lot about how difficult it is to pilot the aircraft. And I guess that's deceptive. From, from a spectator's perspective, it looks kind of like they're just flying the airplane. But it's not like that at all, apparently. These guys and girls are 
They are working. I'm making them work very hard. They're earning their paychecks. <laughs> Carol, I know this will be a difficult subject, but one which we would be remiss if we didn't talk about. In the span of just under three months between May and August of 2016, a long-time former pilot of yours, Bill Gordon, and your then-current pilot, Marcus Payne, who you mentioned previously, with whom you were featured in the series Air Show, were both tragically killed in aircraft that they were piloting. Can you tell us about this particular period, your thoughts on Bill and Marcus, how you process those events, and how eventually you were able to move on? Hmm. <clears throat> well, let's start at the beginning. Bill was a shock to me. Bill was one of the most consummate professionals that I had ever had the privilege to know in my lifetime. It's one of those things where you can maybe accept pilot A, B, or C perishing, but when somebody that you respect so much and is a cornerstone in your life, passes through an air show accident it just kind of puts you on guard it's like well if this can happen to them it can happen to me any day of the week honestly bill's passing set a tone for me that season and that season became the season of heightened paranoia i was double and triple checking everything and i'd been i would say somber that season just because you know, you need to watch out because this could happen to you. Losing Bill was devastating to me because he was the last person that I'd ever expected to see perish. And by the end of the season, when I heard of Marcus passing, uh, and the sheriff's department called me because they couldn't, they had no information to reach his family. So I was the person that they reached. It was a blow. It was an absolute blow. And it was compounded because I was still processing Bill's deal. And I had one of my friends call me up and say, Carol, what, whatever you do, just don't quit. I don't think you should quit. And I said, well, if I quit, it'll be because I want to. Trust me, I, I thought about it long and hard. When Jimmy perished, I thought about it long and hard, actually, when several of my flying colleagues perished. The reality of the life I'm living and the career I've chosen is that everybody in the airshow industry has been devastated by deaths. We haven't just lost one friend. We've lost several friends. This is a reality of our environment. And the fact remains that after everything is said and done, I'm still a wing walker. And therefore, I wing walk. Every day I go out and wing walk, it's the only way I know to honor Jimmy and Bill and Marcus. And they're with me every flight. They always have been. It's what I've chosen to do with my life, and it's what they chose to do with their lives. Yeah, all I do is one foot in front of the other. Just doing the annual this year, yesterday, I found this piece of debris in the bottom of the airplane. 
I pulled it out with a pair of pliers, long nose things, and it was one of Marcus's little cards that he had made up for his promotional material. So every now and then, you kind of get a kick in the teeth like that. Two years later, and I'm pulling stuff out of the bottom of the airplane that he'd left there. He's watching over me. He's taking care of me. So is Bill. So are all my flying buddies. And all I can do is keep living the life that we all chose to live. So I go out and I wing walk, and that's how I process it, and that's how I deal with it. We'll have much more from Carol in just a moment, but as I mentioned earlier, the Work Not Work show is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. APN is dedicated to the support and development of independent podcasts here in our beautiful home of Alberta, Canada. As a member of APN, we receive both financial support as well as the fellowship of other great podcasters in the network. Because there are so many great podcasts from which to choose, here's a personal recommendation to get you started. That's So Maven with host Andrea Bessa. Like the Work Not Work show, Andrea features great in-depth interviews with a wide variety of amazing guests. Andrea has a unique style which will make listening both enlightening and entertaining. So after you finish listening to Carol Pilon, check out That's So Maven with Andrea Bessa. It can be found along with a host of other great independent podcasts at albertapodcastnetwork.com. That's just the way it sounds. No spaces. Just before the break, Carol spoke of how she coped with the loss of three of her pilots and how she found a way forward from those tragedies. Coming up, Carol talks about what it takes to be a pilot in her show and how she qualifies them to join her team. Can you tell us about that pilot that you're working with now? Well, absolutely. In in 2016, obviously, there was Marcus and Bill, but um, I had two other pilots on my roster who had to withdraw for personal issues. They had to retire from doing air shows for a season. So that left me looking for new pilots. I found some very talented individuals. Uh, the gentleman that I spent the bulk of 2017 with is uh, James Satan Lavelle, and he is actually a retired A-10 pilot uh, out of Ohio. Jim is doing a, a bang-up job for me. Uh, aside from flying the A-10, he also started his aviation career as a test pilot for the Waco, te- uh, Waco factory up in Ohio. Still got a lot of bi-wing and tail dragger time. Yeah, so he's he's doing a great job for me. And I also took on uh, Michael Trigveson, who is actually the son of famed astronaut Bjorni Trigveson. I was going to say that name's familiar. Yeah, and he is... He is just a charming young kid. He He's actually 32, but he looks like he's 14 years old, and he's flying with uh, Air Canada Rouge, and he is one of my uh, pilots for the upcoming season. What was it that made them stand out from the crowd in terms of potential pilots? Well, I'd known Jim for quite some time. Patty Wagstaff, who is just a walking legend to me, she's one of my best friends and actually I'm hero struck by her. I have such a girl crush on that woman, it's not possible. She actually called me up and and referred Jim to me. She knows Jim's family, and uh, she was quite adamant that he would be an excellent individual for me, and she was not wrong in her assessment. I started working with Jim in 2010. He was invited onto the team, and at that time, he was doing a solo demo in the Stearman, and I was assisting him in lowering his sack level or his performance level. 
then he kind of morphed off into a different direction. And I'm like, well, if he's happy there, he can go there. And off he went. And just, you know, circumstances brought us back together. And then he uh, fulfilled the position of pilot for us for 2017. And he did an excellent job. Uh, Mike, I've known for several years as well, but not in such an intimate way. Mike has a Giles, which he flies on the circuit. Mike was being challenged with trying to become a performer on the scene as a new guy. And I thought, you know what? He's an incredible talent. And people have no idea of how good this kid is actually going to be. He is just a natural at it. He's going to be incredible. But getting over that hump of getting into the industry and making a name for yourself is very, very challenging. And I thought that he would be a good fit for the team as he could help me out with his piloting services and I could help him out with a little bit of notoriety. So we have a good system going on. Carol, how will you know when you're ready to retire? When it doesn't make my heart beat faster. When it doesn't make me want to wake up in the morning. When it doesn't fulfill me. When it ceases to be fun, entertaining, And when it stops being the quest for excellence, that's when I'll retire. Do you think that's ever going to happen? I don't know. It might. (laughs) But you, you, you don't feel any sense of that at all right now? I have that sense when it comes to the actual industry, but not about the wing walking. I mean, there are times where I've been kind of beaten up by the industry. But the actual wing walking, I mean, let's face it. If air shows stop being tomorrow morning... I would find a way to go up in my airplane and wing walk over a swamp if there were two frogs in there. And actually, if there weren't frogs there, I would still wing walk. Right, I see. Period. Right. (laughs) It's that compelling. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Wing walkers are an incredibly small community. Um, Is there a particular wing walker for whom you've had particular admiration or feel a special kinship towards? I feel an absolute kinship uh, towards Kelly Garvin, who is a young lady who I am currently mentoring. I'd often thought about how am I going to continue with the next generation of wing walkers and how am I going to assist them in happening and how am I going to help them have a future? And I decided one day that if I go out and train 15 wing walkers, well, then they're just competing against me tomorrow morning for job. But even then, there are no jobs, like quite frankly. So I'm like, okay, how do I make this happen? And I'm like, why don't you just develop a position on your team for a wing walker? And I did. I developed a position on my team. We have a dual wing walking act. She is, I mean, she is the woman who I saw struggle with trying to become a wing walker as much as I struggled with trying to become a wing walker. There's no doubt in my mind that she's absolutely earned her spot on the wing, and she's been an absolute blessing in my life. She's been the best of friends. She's loyal beyond the shadow of a doubt, and she's going to be an excellent wing walker. Well, she is an excellent wing walker, but, you know, it's like I'm teaching, so I keep teaching. (laughs) What is it that you look for? What is it that you saw in her? Oh, the passion. I just saw the passion in her. You know, her physicality is absolutely wrong, (laughs) but her passion is just everything that it needs to be. And that's what I was looking for. 
And I see that in a lot of people that I am now training. Kelly's got a special place in my heart. I'll admit it to you. Another wing walker that I admire greatly is Joe. And he's also a young gentleman that I helped out on the wing. His name is Joseph Bender. And now he has a full-time home at the uh, Bealton Flying Circus. He is just a great individual. If we're talking about people I admire, uh, I admire Margie. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, she's just this ball of life and energy. And, and she gave me so much. I admire Anhoy Sanchez, who's in Spain trying to develop her own team. I admire Danielle, uh, who went out and did the same thing as me. I admire Cindy Weber, who's trying to start up a team in South Africa. I absolutely admire Teresa Stoke because she's just tolerated Jean Susie for so long. <laughs> <laughs> I, I admire Ashley Battles, Ashley Shelton. I, I admire all wing walkers. You know what? There are so few of us. Jesus, we should all celebrate the stuffing out of each other. I, we're fantastic individuals. It's such a small club and such a unique thing that binds you together. It, it really and truly is. I've been blessed to walk amongst giants. In an early 2017 interview with BuzzFeed contributor Suzanne Cope, the article finishes with a quote, which I've modified just a little bit. I am having more fun in a week than most have in a lifetime. How much fun can you possibly have? And then you go on to say, I don't know. I haven't reached it yet. We're a year and a bit on from that article. Are you any closer to knowing how much fun you can possibly have? Negative. <laughs> That well runs deep. <laughs> Very deep. <laughs> I'm running with the 50 thing. This is going to be the year of experience. If anybody out there has something insane they want me to try or an experience, hit me up. I've survived myself for a half a decade. I need to celebrate that. Half a century, Carol. Not half a half decade. Half a century. century. Give yourself I some credit. I am rocking it. Over the course of your career, you have said that you've done hundreds of interviews. What's the one question you've never been asked? Well, the one question I've never been asked is what have you sacrificed to be a wing walker? What's your answer to that? It's not only an answer for a wing walker. It's, it's a question for and an answer for all air show performers. Really, this is the gist of it. Being an air show performer is hard. What we sacrifice is financial security, and not only our own, the financial security of our families. There are pilots out there who've leveraged airplanes against homes. We sacrifice our families months on the road, months removed from our families. And unfortunately, a lot of us don't come home. And those children are left without parents. And those spouses are left without partners. So the sacrifices we make are huge and include our very lives. And I want people to understand that every air show performer that they see out there performing is putting everything on the line and they're doing it because they love doing it. And we want to express the love of aviation that we have running through every fiber of our body. 
and I hope that the general public can appreciate it. And the other thing I need to do is take time to thank every family member for allowing every airshow performer the latitude to go their dreams. Because oftentimes without the support from the home front, this would never be possible. And families, <clears throat> family members sacrifice quite a bit as well. And they're the backbone of the airshow industry that nobody ever gets to see and nobody ever applauds. Carol, this has been everything I hoped it would be and so much more. So thank you so much for agreeing to participate in this interview and for being such a fantastic storyteller. Thank you for coming on. It has been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having thought of Third Strike Wing Walking. I appreciate it. I have one more question for you, Carol. Is that, and Go ahead. I, I, I ask it of all of my guests, and that is, can we do this again sometime as your career continues to evolve? Could we get together again and get an update and see how things have evolved? Well, I would expect nothing less. Fantastic. Of course. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Carol, thank you again. And well, let's just say we'll see each other down the road. Cheers. That brings to an end this episode of the Work Not Work Show. And I would like to once again thank our very special guest, wing walker, Carol Pilon. It's been a true pleasure. And I look forward to our next conversation with her. If you like what you've heard, please write us on Apple Podcasts or even add a few comments in the form of a review if you can. Either and or both are really important to help build the audience for the show. It really helps. We also have a companion publication on Medium. Please find us there at medium.com. You can also find us on Patreon, and we would be honored if you would consider becoming a patron of the show, which starts for as little as $1 per episode. Our website is worknotwork.show, and we're on all of your favorite social media. We look forward to hearing your feedback, good or bad. So please leave your comments on one of our platforms. The show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Terrence C. Gannon, and is wholly owned by Interlog Inc. of Calgary, Canada. All rights are reserved. Thank you, Michelle, my lovely wife, for your continuing support and your infinite patience. Finally, thank you our faithful audience for supporting the Work Not Work show, the show about people who, like Carol, have turned their passion into their profession. Mm-hmm.